Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your good buddies Tim Treg and JD. We're three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you your favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all times and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who've inspired us over the years. Today, Treg is going to bring us the story behind Dreams by the Allman Brothers. Thanks, Tim. Uh, great to be recording again with Tim and JD. That takes us way back to several years ago that the three of us were together. Uh, this is... It's been a while. Yeah. Dreams by the Allman Brothers. It's from their debut album, The Allman Brothers Band. It was released in 1969. The song was written by Greg Allman, uh, which is another great rocker who recently passed away. Uh, incredibly sad. And to keep up with all these tragic losses of rock and roll icons, we're going to have to record a little more often, I think. Uh, we lost recently Tom Petty, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. who else? It seems like there was one other. Chris Cornell. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, very sad. I want to thank listener Harold for recommending Dreams uh, today. It's a great song, and, and he actually he, he also suggested that we compare it to the Molly Hatchet version, which we'll do a little later in the podcast, too. Thanks, Harold. And your purple crayon. The Allman Brothers Band, the original lineup was Dwayne Allman on slide and lead guitar, Dickie Betts on lead guitar, Greg Allman on organ and lead vocals, Barry Oakley on bass, guitar, and backing vocals, Jai jo- Johanny Johansson on drums and congas, and Butch Trucks on drums and percussion. Uh, the band was just loaded with elite talent. Uh, Greg's bluesy voice placed him at number 70 in the Rolling Stone list of the 100 greatest singers of all time. And Dwayne, Dickie Betts, and Derek Trucks, and Derek, who joined the band later, uh, they were all listed very high on the Rolling Stone list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. So this is a band with some major talent. I feel like Rolling Stone owes us some advertising money. <laughs> Because all we ever do is quote <laughs> Rolling Stone's list. They should put us as the Rolling Stone top number one podcast about rock and roll. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just hope they don't sue us, you know, for <laughs> using their name. <laughs> Free advertising for them. Yeah. Let's talk first about the band. Dwayne and Greg had recorded a few albums in Los Angeles under the name Hourglass for Liberty Records. This was before forming the Allman Brothers. Uh, and actually, it's they, they made some pretty decent blues music at that time. Dwayne moved to Muscle Shoals, Alabama to do some session work, but Greg stayed behind in L.A. because of contractual commitments to Liberty. So Dwayne in Muscle Shoals, he participated in session work at the Fame Studios for artists such as Aretha Franklin, King Curtis, and Wilson Pickett. And uh, with Wilson Pickett, he recorded a cover of the Beatles' Hey Jude that went to number 23 on the national charts. My understanding is that Duane was actually a highly sought-after session recording artist at this time. So Duane and Jai Johanny Johansson, who they call Jaimo, they moved back to Jacksonville, Florida, and Duane there began to put together a new band. Uh, He invited bassist Barry Oakley to jam with the new group. Uh, they had met in Jacksonville, in a Jacksonville, Florida club sometime earlier and, and become good friends. The group had immediate chemistry, and 
Dwayne's vision for a different band, one with two lead guitarists and two drummers, began evolving at this time. Dickie Betts had played in Oakley's previous band called The Second Coming, and he became the group's second lead guitarist, while Butch Trucks, uh, with whom Dwayne and Greg had cut demos about a year before, fulfilled the role of the second drummer. Uh, the five were jamming one day at Dwayne's home in Jacksonville, and uh, uh, he reports that the session lasted about four hours and left them all electrified. They were having such a great time. So at the end of this, at the end of the session, Dwayne stepped to the entrance and he blocked it with his arms and said, "Anybody who isn't playing in my band is going to have to fight their way out of this room." So they, <laughs> he really liked the chemistry that he had with the, with these guys. Uh, the unnamed group began to perform free shows in the Willow Branch Park in Jacksonville with rotating cast of musicians. Dwayne felt strongly that his brother Greg should be the vocalist for the new group. Uh, Greg accepted the invitation, and they entered rehearsals on March 26, 1969, uh, when the group was rehearsing Trouble No More by Muddy Waters. Although initially Greg was intimidated by the musicians, Dwayne pressured Greg into singing his guts out. And, uh, boy, you can really sense that when you listen to their albums, that he really sang his guts out. Four days later, the group made their debut at the Jacksonville Armory. Uh, although uh, they tossed around a lot of different names for the band, including one of the proposed names was Beelzebub, uh, the, the, they eventually decided on the Allman Brothers Band. Uh, then the group moved Well, so to... closely related. <laughs> what is it, by the way, with all of those classic rock and roll bands and their and their relationship to the devil? <laughs> Beelzebub? <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Shock and awe factor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the group moved to Macon, Georgia by May 1 of that year. Uh, the band's image in Macon was pretty radical for a southern town at this time in the late 1960s. Uh, their friend, whose name was Mama Louise Hudson, said, A lot of white folks around here did not approve of them long-haired boys or of them always having a black guy with them. I thought that was pretty funny. There you go. Revolutionary at the time. Uh, the group forged a strong brotherhood, spending countless hours rehearsing, consuming psychedelic drugs, and hanging out in the Rose Hill Cemetery, where they, where they wrote a lot of their music. Their first performance outside of the South came on May 30 and 31 in Boston, where they opened for the Velvet Underground. That would have been a pretty good show to see, too. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the album, their debut album, The Allman Brothers Band, it combines blues, jazz, and country music to varying degrees. Much of the material collected on the, on the album was written between the period of May to August 1969, and they premiered many of the songs live. According to Johansson, the, the group gauged crowd reaction to the numbers and adjusted the songs accordingly. So before they went into the studio, they had a very clear idea of what they were trying to do, and, and, it, um, and it was unique and totally different from anything else that was playing on the, uh, that was playing on the radio at the time. Dickie Betts said, from the earliest rehearsals, we had the same mindset. The album was recorded and mixed in about two weeks at the Atlantic Studios in New York City. According to biographer Alan Paul, virtually no outtakes exist from the sessions. The band had performed their songs countless times in the preceding months and had them down cold. Uh, this was kind of interesting that I, I read about that 
a red light on the recording board would go on when the band would start recording, and it made Greg nervous, and so uh, he unscrewed the light so that he couldn't see it. <laughs> so that I know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's something I was gonna say about them. Is back in the day when you had to record, and like nowadays you can record and and do all kinds of takes and you can punch in when you want and punch out but back then they're just recording on the two inch tape or the four inch tape or whatever and they they had one take and if they messed up they had to do the whole thing again yeah. so just the the talent from these guys was amazing yeah yeah no auto-tune at that time huh no auto-tune yeah <laughs> <laughs> um the the two-week booking was initially designed for laying down basic tracks and and then they would follow later with overdubs but the group ended up cutting the entire record using just six of the days that they had reserved. So when you put professionals together, it's amazing what you can come up with. Uh, they, yeah. The group first entered the Atlantic Studios on the Sunday night just to get sounds. But they at that time, they actually laid down the album's opener, Don't Want You No More, and It's Not My Cross to Bear. as well as a, a rough version of Dreams, which the band at that time set aside. Uh, their last day on the studio was Tuesday the following week, and they produced a final version of Dreams. The record initially received poor commercial response. It charted in the lower levels of the Billboard Top 200 Pop Albums chart, and the album sold fewer than 35,000 copies upon its initial release. So executives for the record company suggested to the manager that they relocate to New York or Los Angeles to acclimate them to the industry. And uh, this is what uh, Butch Truck said about that. He said, they wanted us to act like a rock band, and we just told them to go blank themselves. Uh, for their part, the members of the band remained optimistic, and they decided to stay in the South. So everyone... Uh, again, this is what Greg Allman said. Everyone told us that we'd fall by the wayside down there, but the collaboration between the band and Capricorn Records transformed Macon from this sleepy little town into a very hip, wild, and crazy place filled with bikers and rockers. That must have been quite a shock to the system down in the South in the late 1960s, I suspect. <laughs> uh, the band really had no commercial success in mind when they formed uh, they'd all had troublesome experiences in the past with record companies and, and labels and that pushed for radio hits, and they didn't want any part of that. They felt like in time they would just develop a small devoted following and be strong enough to collect three to $4,000 per night, and that's what they were primarily interested in. In a Rolling Stone review of the album by Lester Bangs, this was in 1970, he said, The Allman Brothers are a rather heavy white blues group out of Muscle Shoals. They look like the post-teen punk band rehearsing next door. For all the white blues bands proliferating today, it's still inspiring when the real article comes along. A white group who've transcended their schooling to produce a volatile blues rock sound of pure energy, inspiration, and love. The Almonds have learned their lessons well, and they play with the same drive and conviction as their mentors. The Almonds know what they're doing and feel it deeply as well, and they communicate immediately. One of the virtues of a simple, standardized form like the blues is that when played right, it's such a comfortable place to return to. The whole album is like that. You've been there a thousand times before, and it feels like home instead of mind-numbing banality because the almonds have mastered the form with rare subtlety, and also because their blues keep you vibrating from one brilliant hard rock interpolation to the next. 
and a retrospective review from Bruce Eater about the album. This is from All Music website. He said, It might be the best debut album ever delivered by an American blues band, a bold, powerful, hard-edged, soulful essay in electric blues with a native southern ambiance. Some lingering elements of the psychedelic era then drawing to a close can be found in Dreams. So let's talk about the song. Dreams was the only song in which the group got stuck during the recording session for the album because of Dwayne's displeasure with his guitar solo. Uh, Dwayne finally got a track that he was happy with after he instructed the other members to turn off the lights in the studio, and then he sat in a corner beside his amp and baffle, and he played slide guitar, which he hadn't done before in the previous takes, and he improvised the overdubbed performance, bringing all of the members to tears. Uh, Butch Truck said, It was unbelievable. It was just magic. It's always been that the greatest music we played was from out of nowhere, that it wasn't practiced, planned, or discussed. Barry Oakley uh, said that Dreams developed from a jam in which the band toyed with the theme from the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. Johansson's drum fills were pulled from Jimmy Cobb's performance on All Blues, and he later commented that he did a lot of copying, but only from the best. Scott Freeman, in his book Midnight Riders, the story of the Allman Brothers Band, said that Dreams begins with an intricate, subdued drums playing under a soft organ with only the hint of guitars before Greg begins singing about disillusionment and broken dreams. Just one more morning I had to wake up with the blues And Lester Bangs from his review says that the album's pinnacle for me is Dreams, a beautiful aching lament in waltz time. It begins with softly pulsing organ and throaty, movingly understated vocals all about a man whose world is crumbling because, quote, I'm hung up on dreams, close quote. A familiar story, but the way it's written and delivered by the Almonds makes it poignantly realistic and universal. I, I just love this song. The lyrics to the song are pure blues. Uh, they reflect a man who drags himself out of bed, climbs a mountain, and, and sees his whole world falling down in front of him because of his unrealized dreams. Uh, and out of hope or resignation, however, he pulls himself together, puts on a new face, climbs down the hill, and gets back in the race. can't relate to that. Uh, you know, it's so, <laughs> so simple and elegant. Uh, and who hasn't had a time in their life when they've felt demoralized by dreams they'll never see? I certainly know that I have. You know, I wanted to make movies. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I went off on my own for a while and then realized that I wasn't in the right place and not at the right time. And although I was skilled at doing what I was doing, it just wasn't going to happen. So I had to go get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really good at watching movies. <laughs> really good at talking about movies. Uh, Amanda Wicks from The Pitch said, If fate dealt a heavy and heady vision in the dreams, Greg didn't cocoon himself from feeling the full force of that despair. 
This will surely be the end of me, he sang, his gravelly voice straining to grapple with the dystopian scene he witnesses in his mind's eye. Although the Allman Brothers band made their name with their guitar heroics, the song's organ stands at the center of dreams. Greg's already minimal lyricism eventually takes a backseat to Duane's guitar, resulting in a winding jam replete with conversant guitars that would become their modus operandi. Greg said in his autobiography that Dreams was the first song of his that his bandmates truly took to when he joined them after moving to L.A. This is what Greg said about an early rehearsal. Let me tell you, they joined right in. It was in, brother. They loved it. Uh, Dreams was the name of the Allman Brothers 1989 box set. An unreleased studio version of the song was used on the box set. Uh, I read this great story. You know, the Allman Brothers were just famous for their jams. And that's, that's where they originated, was from jamming, you know, these jam sessions. And they were playing at the Fillmore East one night. So they were playing in, in one of their sets, and they just kept jamming. They, they started late in the evening, maybe, you know, late at night, and they just kept jamming. For hours and hours they jammed, and uh, until early in the morning, one of the audience members walked over and opened up the door, and it was daylight. They had jammed all night long, and uh, nobody clapped because they didn't need to. It had just been such an amazing experience. They all, you know, the audience just filed out. And Butch Truck said this about that night. He said, uh, Dwayne walked off the stage in front of him, dragging his guitar, and said, "It's like leaving church. Probably the greatest night of his life." That would have been something to see. You yeah. know, just sit there mesmerized for hours oh, while yeah. they jammed. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why it's so fun going to concerts because a lot of times the artists will switch up their stuff and add in stuff that's not on the recorded song. And, and so to listen to them jam just always brings such a big smile to my face. Yep. I love it. And, and that's what really shows off what brilliant musicians they are when they can do that, you know. Mm-hmm. For hours, for a whole night. Yeah, yeah. So they, they released live recordings of the Fillmore East shows, and after that, the band really began to see commercial success. Uh, the, the previous two albums had taken the band months to, before they hit the charts, but the Fillmore East concerts peaked at number 13 on, on the Billboard uh, chart pretty quickly, within a matter of days, I believe. And uh, it was also certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America that October. The album is considered one of the best live albums of all time. Unfortunately, uh, which is a, a story all too often uh, that we tell um, about bands and rockers, shortly after seeing their first commercial success, uh, the band suffered some terrible tragedies. Dwayne, the group's leader, was killed in a motorcycle crash on October 29, 1971. He was 24 years old. He was riding a, his motorcycle at a high speed, as a flatbed truck carrying a lumber crane stopped suddenly in the intersection in front of him. It forced him to swerve uh, to avoid the collision, but he struck either the back of the truck or the equipment that it was carrying, and he was thrown from the motorcycle. And the motorcycle bounced into the air and landed on him and skidded another 90 feet with Dwayne pinned underneath it, and it crushed his internal organs. Uh, he was initially alive when he arrived at the hospital, but... Uh, you know, they they tried surgery, but it didn't work, and he died several hours later from internal injuries. 
So after the death of Dwayne, it was very difficult for the band following the accident. Uh, but they knew that Dwayne had given them such a great gift that they had to pursue. Butch Truck said, we all had this thing in us that Dwayne put in there. He was the teacher, and he gave something to us, his disciples, that we had to play out. Not too long after that, the band completed the recording of Eat a Peach, the album, and they felt that it lifted their spirits and brought the life back to them. Uh, Barry Oakley, the band's new unofficial leader, couldn't cope after the tragedy, and he was incapacitated much of the time from his grief and from alcohol. He was unable to play effectively and sometimes fell off the stage. On November 11, 1972, which was just about a year after Dwayne died, uh, Oakley also crashed his motorcycle. He crashed it into the side of a bus about three blocks away from where Dwayne had been killed. Uh, apparently he'd been drinking. Uh, after the accident, he refused to go to the hospital and he went home instead uh, but he gradually grew delirious. Uh, he was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter and died of cerebral swelling caused by a fractured skull. Oakley and Duane were buried next to each other at the Rose Hill Cemetery in Macon, hmm. which is fitting. That's where they used to party and write a lot of their songs. Yeah. Well, despite the tragedies, the Allman Brothers continued touring and recording. Greg told Cameron Crowe in a 1973 interview, we'd all have turned to vegetables if we hadn't been able to get out there and play. Uh, one other sad story, in about 1976, under severe pressure from authorities, Greg testified against his personal bodyguard for trafficking narcotics. Uh, the rest of the band saw this as a betrayal of the Brotherhood, and it caused the band to break up. Uh, they did get together occasionally after that. I saw them in the mid-1990s. I don't remember the lineup. I do remember that. Uh, I do remember Dickie Betts and, and Greg, but I don't remember if any of the other original members were there at the time. Uh, the Allman Brothers were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in January 1995. Greg was so drunk that he couldn't make it through his acceptance speech. So after he saw a broadcast of his acceptance speech later, he was mortified and it provided a catalyst for his final successful attempt to quit alcohol and substance abuse. The uh, Allman Brothers are generally considered one of the pioneers of Southern rock, although the group doesn't like that term, and they've tried to distance themselves from it. Uh, Dickie Betts, in particular, hated being pigeonholed by terms. Uh, Greg Allman saw the Southern rock tag as redundant. He said it was like saying, rock, rock. <laughs> Uh, Warren Haynes said that the problem I have is that a lot of people associate it with rednecks and rebel flags and backward mentality, but that has never been representative of the Allman Brothers Band. One of my favorite stories about the Allman Brothers Band is that uh, I was sitting with my daughters at a concert and they were playing music while we were waiting for the, for the uh, I think it was Billy Joel. We were waiting for Billy Joel to come on mm -hmm. and they were playing music over the loudspeaker and and an Allman Brothers song came on. I think it was Mountain Jam. And I've always played this game with my girls. We call it School of Rock. And uh, I used to teach them every day on the way to school about different band members, different bands and members and songs. And so when this song came on, I, I said, hey, Sierra, who's this band? And she sat there and listened for a second. And then she said, the Allman Brothers. And I just had a big grin. That was one of the proudest days of my life. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So let's go back to this whole Southern rock thing. I I definitely think there's a a Southern rock. I mean, I get that 
that was their uh, reality. That's the, the type of rock that they played. So, of course, that would be what they considered to be rock and roll. But yeah, yeah. I think I think I think there's definitely a a southern rock, especially if if you have a, a roots in the blues, for sure. So, I mean, you know, when we've talked about, uh, we've talked about Janis Joplin, we've talked about, uh, uh, in the past, we've talked about, uh, I don't know that we've done a podcast, but we've talked about Molly Hatchett and Leonard Skinner. And I mean, even from the 80s, there was 38 Special and and you they had a distinctive sound. So I think it's, I think yeah. it's fair yeah. to call Southern Rock, Southern Rock. And uh, I, I guess it just depends on on what your roots are and, and what you play all the time, and, and that becomes your reality. But you know, uh, I don't I don't think uh, I think sometimes Led Zeppelin sounds like Southern rock. They certainly sound like the blues a lot. But I, I don't think uh, the Allman Brothers or Leonard Skinner sounds anything like, uh, for the most part, um, Jethro Tull or you know, some of the other classic rock and roll bands. Yep. Yep. I wonder why do we insist on categorizing? We certainly do. You know, you got prog rock, you got glam rock. Sure. Classic rock. <laughs> well, everybody new has wave, a, alternative. Everybody has a distinctive style. Um, the Beatles often sound different to me. And I know I talk a lot about Jethro Tull, but I think Jethro Tull sounds a very different. Oh yeah. A lot yeah. of the time. I mean, you can get one song from one song to the next. It might sound like a completely different style of music. But the Beatles do too. The only time, the only thing about the Beatles is that you can always recognize their harmonies. You know, when they're when they're singing, it they have a distinctive sound uh, vocally. But a lot of times musically, I don't know that they that they sound the same. Certainly, their later stuff didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Almond Brothers yeah. are great, but I don't think it's even an insult to call something Southern rock. <laughs> True. Right. True. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, and it seems like most uh, music has a somewhat of a blues background or history or roots or something in it because blues was it was the beginning it was like it it is the soul of many of these musicians that come up with the stuff especially guitarists a lot of the stuff comes from blues and and the the southern style for sure yeah you know, I wonder if some bands don't even intentionally try to play and try to get pigeonholed into a specific style or, you know, they're copying mm-hmm. a style so that they can be associated. You know, how many Led Zeppelin copycats are there? How many yeah. Beatles copycats yeah, are there? Sure. You know, whether you, right. whether you call them blues rock or, Maybe or prog rock or whatever, you know, they're trying, they're trying to fit that sound, which, you know, is a, maybe a shortcut to commercial success. Maybe the issue for them mm-hmm. was, was, geography me you don't you don't you don't call the rolling stones for example uk rock or you know well, sometimes you do <laughs> do you british invasion yeah <laughs> well yeah british invasion is different though than the style of rock it's it's the the timing of when when the music was popular you certainly don't call uh, let it be the british invasion for example but you might you know i want to hold your hand or can't buy me love mm-hmm. um you don't call uh, billy joel Eastern rock. True. You know, so I don't know, maybe, maybe it was the geography. Maybe they were worried that, you know, that, that stereotype of the, the rebel flag waving, you know, hillbilly type person didn't really represent them. And so the, the Southern rock, um, uh, 
title didn't sit well with them. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think they were one of the originals too. Sure. So great band. I mean, when you listen to Dreams, I mean, first thing you think of, I, I think you, you you think blues, but you also just think seventies. Yeah. Early seventies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's that's the first thing that came to my mind uh, when I heard the when I heard the song again was seventies. You know, it's just that that I don't know. Maybe people would be offended by that. You have a seventies sound. <laughs> I wouldn't. I I I first when I listened to it, I thought this is a seven minute and fifteen second long song. So I think I'm really gonna like it, or it's gonna get boring. And it never got boring. I really liked it. Yeah, the guitar yeah. solo alone was really cool. And awesome. Like you discussed already, Trey. Just the, having the lights off and with the slide and everything. Talented guy. Yep. 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 Amazing. Well, let's talk about another southern rock group for a minute. Uh, so Molly Hatchett did a great cover of the song. They are an American Southern rock band. They were formed in Jacksonville, Florida in 1971. They released their self-titled album in 1978. Uh, the band was founded by guitarist Dave Holbeck, and they're best known for their song Flirting with Disaster. That's from their second studio album It was that was released in 1979. The uh, band released their first album, which is Molly Hatchet, in 1978, and its song "Dreams I'll Never See," which is the cover of the Almonds. It got uh, it got a lot of album-oriented rock airplay. Uh, here was an interesting, um, some interesting trivia about Molly Hatchet. They took their name from a prostitute who allegedly mutilated and decapitated her clients. Nice. Well, the the difference between the two. Uh, songs between Dreams by the Almond Brothers and Dreams I'll Never See by Molly Hatchett. It's pretty interesting. Uh, the Molly Hatchett version is a lot more upbeat and it's missing uh, the organ. They don't have an organ, I don't think, that they play. So uh, their their version is a lot more upbeat, and they 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 miss that anguished brooding feeling of the original. Uh, this was an interesting comment by a guy named William from Ireland who commented on the Song Facts website. He said the whole point of the song is the contrasting tempo between the bass and the drums on one side and the vocals and guitar on the other, hatchet mashing up the whole lot into one tempo, simplifying the song considerably but losing the beautiful urgency and tension in the original. Well, unfortunately, the, the end of this story is that Greg Allman died May 27, 2017, due to complications from liver cancer. And he was buried at the Rose Hill Cemetery in Macon, Georgia, beside his brother Dwayne and his fellow band member, Barry Oakley. In, in his um, uh, biography called My Cross to Bear, Greg reflected on his life and career. He said, music is my life's blood. I love music. I love to play good music. And I love to play music for people who appreciate it. And when it's all said and done, I'll go to my grave and my brother will greet me saying, nice work, little brother. You did all right. I must have said this a million times, but if I died today, I have had me a blast. 
That's Dreams by the Allman Brothers. There you go. Great, great band. Nice. Well, thanks, Treg. Please email us at dudesatrocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting Rocktail Hour of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for the Rocktail Hour. If you think we're just lame, well, please keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. And until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. Rock on.